Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD, Sergeant. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? You know, I just uh, flew back from Florida. I sent you guys some videos while I was there. I had some fun, but in actuality, we only had one good day of weather, and then the next few days, one day it rained, and the next few days were just like the wind. You know, you get to Florida sometimes, and the wind is so so high that you can't really uh, can't really have too much fun. But uh, I'm not complaining. I had some fun, and uh, I got to I got away from this uh, 20 20 degree weather here for a while. Oh, that was <laughs> that was something, right? But you know, so while I was gone, it seemed like all this, these stories started breaking, and I'm like, "Oh my God, I should be home," you know, because even though I could still do a show on the road, I don't have all my equipment. I don't have my, uh, I can't do, run the videos and all that stuff. So I feel like a, a fish out of water a little bit. But I don't want to complain. So we're going to cover this tonight, and I just wanted to give kudos to Duty Ron, who did a great job covering this with. Uh, Ed Wallace and Barbara uh, Butcher. And of course, we're talking about the autopsy of Brian Laundry. That sort of answered a great deal of questions that many people will have. And before I get into that, we're going to come up with the police off the cuff song and we'll get back right back into this. And folks, it's going to be a great show. It's a show with two retired detectives. Now we're in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Well, folks, we're back. We all know the story of Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito. It became sort of an international sensation. It caught the imagination. It caught the hearts, basically, of everyone uh, when when Gabby Petito was found dead. And, of course, the number one suspect was always Brian Laundrie. And, of course, the law enforcement and the media uses the term person of interest. And Phil and I jumped all over that early on, saying, no, he's a damn suspect. Stop with this person of interest nonsense. But there's still, there was lots and lots of questions that remained unanswered. And one of the problems, of course, is whenever the FBI is involved, they're not too friendly with the press. They don't release much information to the public. So a lot of things were left to, up to rumor. There was a lot of rumors about things that happened. And now with this 47-page report, it's pretty clear what, what occurred. Can they say 100% that that Brian Laundrie committed suicide? They're satisfied that he did, and we're going to get into that. Can they say 100% that he killed Gabby Petito? And, in fact, in his notebook, he confessed to it. 
Is that enough for most people? Is that with the conspiracy theorists, with people that want the smoke coming out of the gun and it on video, will they accept that? I don't know. I think, though, when you have, you know, a totality of evidence and the preponderance of evidence on this case, it sort of satisfies most people in law enforcement. There'll always be people that will second guess it, Phil. Well, basically, Bill, in a court of law, uh, we go by the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. Based on all of the facts that I read in this 49-page report, I would be very comfortable saying that I believe with beyond a reasonable doubt that Brian committed suicide. And I would also say that, uh, and this is not knowing uh, all of the investigation that was uncovered from the crime scene of Gabby Petito, where her body was found, as well as the crime scene uh, the van, when they did the uh, crime scene, the investigation on that, the forensic investigation. Um, I'm not going to say beyond a reasonable doubt, but I would say uh, definitely a preponderance of the evidence, which is a lower standard that, you know, based on the fact that in the journal they found that he said he was responsible for, he took responsibility for Gabby Pedito's murder. So I would say if I did have that other information, I would be able to maybe get to beyond a reasonable doubt, but I think it's very clear that he's responsible for the murder. And I think beyond a reasonable doubt, he committed suicide. Let's put a little bit on the, here on the screen and we'll play a little bit of this just to get back into what and when things happen. were positively identified as laundry who had shot himself in the left side of the head. A single bullet was found 50 to 60 feet away, buried in about six inches of dirt. The report also reveals for the first time that Laundry used a 38 caliber handgun found with one spent and two live rounds. And there was a new detail offered about the 23-year-old's personal belongings. We knew about the journal found in the dry bag, but the report indicates there was also a handwritten half note found near the remains and a wooden box that contains a small notebook and pictures, including some images of Laundry. Laundry also had a tent and flares with him, but the tent was still in the backpack. Also new, one detective reported after the remains were found, he asked Chris and Roberta Laundry about their son's social history, but the report says Mr. and Mrs. Laundry stated that they did not want to provide information. And information about the results of toxicology testing. The comprehensive drug screen was completed just 10 days ago and indicated no drugs were detected in Laundry's system. So there's a quick sort of update of uh, telling some of the things. A lot of the questions that people had, of course, A, let's get to the, was the gun discovered on the scene? No one knew that. Uh, B, was there any ballistic evidence found on the scene? Uh, what was the gun? What was the, was the gun the same gun that was that the Laundry family supposedly was missing one gun? Was that the same gun? Um where I mean, was it a close contact wound? Some of these these things were answered in the autopsy, and I know that you read some of this or have been following this, and you could just answer some of the questions that I just raised if you'd like, Phil. Sure. I mean, um, well, let's go to the gunshot wound. Um, it said that they actually recreated the whole skull. They put it back together with glue, believe it or not. But uh, it said that there was a gunshot wound to the left temple and it exited through the right temple. It was a slightly upward, uh, uh, it was pointed in a slightly upward direction. Um, it also said that there were extensive associated 
craniofacial fractures, which would be consistent with a gunshot wound. Um, I don't think that there's anything so uh, out of the ordinary in what I read in this report. The one thing that we'll talk about, I'm sure they're saying that he was right-handed, but it was uh, it probably uh, the bullet was to his left side of his head. Not probably, definitely it, it was in the left temple, probably in his right, uh, in his left hand. So uh, again, there was that, uh, that would note that was a half note that was found. Maybe he was holding out his hand. He could have been holding something else in his right hand and he used the left hand. And I just wanted to make one thing clear about the handgun. They're saying 38, 357. I believe it to be a 357 handgun. And the reason I say that is because I know, and I, we discussed this previously that a 357 can accommodate a 38 caliber round, whereas a 38 caliber handgun cannot accommodate a 357. It just wouldn't fit. It's a larger cartridge, so it wouldn't fit. So it was probably a 357 uh, uh, handgun. However, they're talking about 38 caliber rounds, so it could have been 38 caliber bullets. It's it's not a big difference in the bullet, just a, a larger bullet with a, a more gunpowder associated with the with the cartridge. So I think that's where that confusion is. Um, there's, we talked about off the air, Bill, you and I earlier today, that 22 long and short, that uh, you know, uh, a rifle, a 22 rifle can accommodate both of those uh, uh, bullets. So it's uh, really a little bit confusing to people that don't know about firearms, but it was probably a, thir a 357 uh, uh, pistol and uh, the, the caliber of round that they found may have been 38. You know, folks, a lot of people are concerned with the fact that the gunshot wound was from the left side excuse me, I'm on the left side of his head and it exited out the right side of his temple. He was, uh, according to his sister, right-handed. So a lot of people were bothered by the fact that he shot himself, if you believe that he committed suicide, he shot himself with his left hand, which is a little bit unusual, but not totally out of the realm of possibility. Uh, Barbara Butcher on Duty Ron's show uh, who has been to, I, I think, over 700 crime scenes in her uh, OCM, OCME uh, career, uh, 700 homicide crime scenes, which is an extremely high number. And she had a case one time where the guy actually put the gun behind his head in, in a like this and shot himself in the back of his head. That's highly, highly unusual, but they found that... Uh, through evidence, he in fact did do that. So is this a little unusual that someone who's a righty shoots themselves with their left hand? A little bit, a little bit, but I don't think it can. you can disqualify him from doing it that way. Uh, but yes, it is a little bit unusual. I would, I would definitely say that. Bill, I got to make a couple of points about that. Now, if this were just a person that was found dead uh, with a gunshot wound to the head without a note, uh, that wasn't under the duress of a homicide investigation as Brian was. Um, uh, the video of him being engaged in the argument and the fight with his girlfriend uh, back on August 12th, all of these factors, uh, you know, if you look at everything in totality, the fact that he did have a notebook with, uh, you know, basically a suicide note and he did take uh, 
responsibility for Gabby's murder. There were photos. So if you took all of those things and took them out and you found a person shot who was right-handed and shot themselves in the left, left, uh, left side of their head, indicating maybe that they shot themselves with their left hand, then that would be highly suspicious to me. But, and then again, an investigation would go on and, and try and find out what their psychological state was, what was going on in their life, different things like that. But with all of the things, all of the facts that we have in this case, I'm very satisfied that that's a very small uh, concern of mine that he shot himself with his left hand. Um, he may have been somewhat ambidextrous. We don't know. Uh, but again, like I said, he might've had something, you know, he could have had rosary beads, let's say, which I don't think were found. I'm just giving a, an example. Could have had something in his hand, a picture of Gabby, and he just put the gun in his left hand and fired the shot. So it's not a big, uh, it's not a big red flag for me at this point. Lisa Cox, thank you for your um, your remark. I'm ambidextrous, so I can use both left and right. My mother was left-handed. Three of my brothers are just, uh, uh, and I just got lucky. And can you both? I can write left-handed. I can eat left-handed. I can do anything. That's you know that's true for everyone. In fact, my my own family, my two sons are both lefties, and my wife's a lefty. So she must have had the dominant, uh, and she can't throw a baseball or a football either. So. It, it didn't help them too much, but they're both left. So it's, that's a weird thing. But, you know, you talk about using right or left hand. Some of the other things in this report that from an investigative standpoint, which point more and more guilt at Brian Laundrie, if you need more and more evidence, is the fact that he used Gabby's credit card. And we knew that uh, on his travel back from uh, Wyoming to Florida. And he also tried to throw off investigators by making a couple of text messages from the Moab desert saying, oh, there's no cell service. And then he also uh, did a couple of other things to try to throw the investigators off. So that is a sign of someone who was guilty in trying to cover their tracks uh, through being a, being a little slick with law enforcement. Absolutely, Billy. And again, I cited earlier that we don't know what was found uh, on Gabby's body. Uh, we know that it was not recovered for a few weeks. Uh, we don't know what state of decomposition it was in. It was probably, you know, three weeks is a long time in, in that environment. It was probably pretty badly decomposed. However, there still was the possibility that there could have been some DNA evidence of Brian's underneath her fingernails if they were intact. We don't know that. We don't know what evidence was recovered inside the back of the van. So if we took all of those things, I mean, he takes responsibility for it. And then if you had the other uh, aspects of the investigation, like I said, the crime scene and the, uh, you know, the forensic investigation of the van, there might be other evidence that would really slam the door shut on uh, him being 100% responsible beyond a reasonable doubt, so to speak. So I think that those, uh, those things are probably uh, were discussed with the family. I know that uh, we, we talked about it, that the family did have a meeting with the, uh, the FBI. Uh, I think it was some, maybe a, uh, probably about a month ago or so. And if you look at the report that was released, the 48, 49 page report, the toxicology results were only uh, returned back to uh, the medical examiner on February the 4th of this year, uh, right. this last couple of weeks. So I think that's probably why they held off on releasing this whole 
uh, autopsy report. They waited for that toxicology. And it wasn't a routine toxicology. You could just take blood out of someone that was, you know, only dead a short period of time and do the toxicology. They had to go into tissue. They went into jawbone tissue, I believe, and some other tissue uh, related to uh, the teeth. So, uh, again, uh, maybe that took a little bit longer than usual. And I don't know how uh, extensive that can be to tell if there were drugs in the system, but it did say that there were, for the drug screening, there were no drugs found in the system. I want to hear a little bit from Barbara Butcher, who is, of course, uh, Duty Ron's, one of Duty Ron's favorites and one of my favorites, of course. Absolutely. You're privy to this stuff. But when, when we had uh, Dr. Murray Marks go, one, two, that's all it takes. Now we find out we have in the 20s, right, of teeth. So, um, and f what seems to be like a full, full set of skeletal remains, albeit they were scattered. How challenging is that to put that together, Barbara? Who, how, how does that go? Um, it's very challenging uh, when you have fragmentation of those remains. Um, let me say something first, though, about the uh, forensic odontology. That gives you a fast identification. Uh, you can do it within a day. Um, but that tooth and also one of his femurs, uh, sampling was taken from the pulp of the tooth and from the marrow of the femur and compared to swabs from his parents. So he had a DNA identification to back up the odontology, uh, which came in in, I think, November. Uh, the DNA confirmed that that was indeed him. Anyway, so to the remains, um, <clears throat> they were completely skeletonized, as we see from the report, just some tiny little bits of, of, um, of cartilaginous material. Um, there was essentially a whole skeleton except for the two kneecaps were missing. Uh, that's not unusual at all. They're fairly small bones, and these remains were scattered to some extent. Um, there was uh, a lot of evidence of animal feeding. Uh, there's gnawing and teeth marks from uh, feral dogs, coyotes, rodents. Uh, and, you know, these, these anthropologists, they know their tooth marks. Right. Uh, the serrated teeth of certain species, the smoother pointed tooth of, of dogs. Um, so they know their stuff on this. And they can identify those that, that scavenger activity. So the bones were scattered. I think the greatest challenge in the reconstruction of this uh, skeleton was in his skull, which was extensively fragmented on the left temporal area where the gunshot uh, entry was. Um, and then it exited right parietal. That's the bone up here. Right. And uh, that was a nice smooth hole with beveling inside you know, nice smooth exit, but the contact, or that's a that's a presumption on my part. The fragmentation, to me, suggests uh, a close wound, if not outright contact wound, um, and that that resulted in fragmentation and shattering the bones around the left temporal and facial area, uh, the sockets of the eyes, etc. And those, those little bones are very thin, especially under the eyes. So it took, took a good deal of trouble to sift through the dirt and the debris there and uh, find all those bones and reconstruct them. And that's...
You know, Barbara Butch is, is just so, so amazing. I mean, the way she explains it, you could tell not only is she a scientist, but she taught for a great many years. And I was one of her students. I took uh, a criminal investigation course for the NYPD. And I also taught the criminal investigation course for the NYPD uh, once I became more experienced. And Barbara Butcher was one of the most popular teachers at the CIC course because not only was she someone that knew her stuff, but she did it with a sense of humor, a, a macabre sense of humor uh, in, in a way. But when she's talking about a close contact wound, when, it, when someone commits suicide, frequently they'll hold the barrel of the gun right against their head. If they pull the trigger with the gun in that position, it does something called tattooing. It leaves actually a, an imprint of the barrel of the gun. And you'll also have uh, a burn and you'll have stippling and gunshot residue around, around the wound. But because this body was out there for, for so long and also submerged in three feet of water after the shot was fired, there was no gunshot residue. They couldn't see. What, there was no tattooing, apparently. But this could have all been washed away or eaten away. Obviously, animals ate away the skin and all the tissue. However, she explained the gunshot wound pretty damn well without there being gunshot residue or tattooing, the fragmentation of the bones. And that's why all of these anthropologists, they dug underneath the dirt for a a, a specific uh, footage to recover pieces of bone that would reconstruct this whole scene. In addition, with a metal detector, they found the projectile that came back to that gun. That is outstanding, outstanding work. I mean, amazing. You know, folks, just so uh, while I'm on this subject, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And uh, if you want to support us further, please join our Patreon. We have three levels of our Patreon. It really helps us do this show, keep it together. And for you guys that want to be part of the YouTube family of Police Off the Cuff, go on our YouTube. We have five different uh, levels, and you can be part of our YouTube family. As you can see, all the folks in the chat with the green font, uh, they're part of our YouTube family. So this case, I mean, so many of the questions that were being raised specifically in the online chats and the the uh, YouTube content creators weren't answered initially. But this 47-page report pretty much answers almost everything. There's always going to be people that are like, oh, I don't, still don't believe it. But it, scientifically, it pretty much answers almost any question that could be answered. Absolutely, Billy. I just want to make one comment about Barbara Butcher. Not only does she know her stuff, but the way she explains it, she explains it in terms that people, a layman, can understand, just ordinary people that are watching the, the podcast, they can understand, uh, you know, not so much scientifically, but just like common sense. In a common sense way, she explains it in wording that she makes you understand what she's talking about. And again, like you explained about the tattooing, and the gunshot residue and the stippling and all of that from a contact wound, none of that flesh is there to show that it's just the, the, the skull, but the fragmentation explains that that's where the bullet went in. And then she explained how there was the exit wound with an upward tra trajectory. So, I mean, the way she did it, uh, you could know nothing about uh, criminal investigation and you understand it and you get it. So yeah, that, that was pretty good. Again, going back to the whole, uh, like you said, there were so many questions about uh, how he 
committed suicide, if he committed suicide, if he killed Gabby. Now that we have a better picture, I think we have about probably about 80% of uh, what went on in this investigation between Gabby's murder and the suicide. I mean, the only thing we don't know is the actual crime scene evidence of Gabby's murder, as well as the forensic evidence that was uh, discovered inside the van, if there was any. So I think we we pretty much answered most of the questions. And look, there's always going to be these keyboard warriors that are going to come up with conspiracy theories. Oh, no way that he shot himself. He's right-handed. It was left side. I think we explained it. And there's just so many variables. And you don't know what a, what what's going through a person's mind at the time they're going to do something like that. Again, like I said, maybe he could have been had something of a prayer. He was praying or maybe he was looking at Gabby. God only knows. Or maybe he read somewhere on the internet that if you shoot yourself in the head and you want to die instantly, it's got to be on the left side. We don't know there. He could have heard that somewhere. There's so many different variables. It's not a big red flag for me. And I think anybody that talks about it from here going forward, you're just a conspiracy theorist. It's quite clear that he committed suicide. And I think it's quite clear that he was responsible for Gabby's murder and I think it's time to basically just close the book on this, uh, you know, on this whole saga, this whole investigation. You know, getting back to the to the crime scene, uh, initially also there were rumors, of course, on the Internet and, and unconfirmed rumors that they had just recovered uh, a skull. And that, in fact, was not true. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, pretty much the entire skeletal remains were um, were recovered. And Barbara Butcher said in her great way, ligament type material was was still ligament. I forgot it wasn't the exact word she used, but she, she was saying there wasn't term. much ligament left, yeah. which is, is kind of a, it's 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 harder than skin. It's not as hard as bone. It's kind of in the middle, so it, it lasts a little longer in decomposition. Basically, that's what she was trying to say, I guess. Fuzzy Doxy, thank you so much for the nine ninety nine super chat, thank and you. thank you for the compliment. Thanks, great show again. You know, guys, we're not is. Phil and I, neither of us are scientists, but we've worked a lot of homicides, and I studied a, a lot of this. Uh, one of the, if any of you guys are ever interested in a good book about homicide, uh, it used to be the Bible. It, it was called the Bible, and it was called Practical Homicide Investigation by Vernon Gebreth, who was a retired NYPD lieutenant. I used to use the book when I taught college, and I, I loved the book. However, I felt it needed to be updated to present day and it, it never it, it in all the chapters it never included anything about cell phones anything about video and that's a huge huge part it never included anything about electronic devices computers all of that stuff and i felt that the book is outstanding but it needs to update and include some of that stuff so if you're ever interested in getting a book it's it, it's a textbook but it's got really gruesome pictures but it's not meant. It's meant as a uh, a reference for real homicide investigators, and it's called again. I'll give him kudos. Uh, er, uh, Vernon Geberth, who's a retired NYPD lieutenant from a long time ago, and the book is called Practical Homicide Investigation. So yeah, all of the scientific stuff that you really need to know. You know, we learn stuff like body temperature. What is the? That's one of the first things that medical legal investigators do when they go to a homicide scene. They look at the uh, the eyes of the deceased. Uh, they look for something called petechial hemorrhaging, which is one sign of possibly asphyxia. They always take the temperature of the body and they take it rectally. Uh, that is one indicator of time of death. 
not very accurate, but is isn't indicated. And of course, there's stuff called rigor mortis, algor mortis, lividity. Uh, so the, all of those things um, are the scientific part of homicide investigation. And I've said a million times, investigation, there's two parts to it. There's the scientific part and there's the policing part. So there's an art and there's a science of it. And the policing part, the questioning, the collecting of evidence, the talking to people, the uh, doing accurate reports, looking at crime scenes, uh, doing a victim, all of that is the art of investigation. The science includes DNA, uh, you know, medical legal investigators, crime scene, collecting evidence, fibers, hairs, all of that stuff comes into play. And all of that stuff came into play in this case. Uh, Kathy Elkins, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. Nice and the compliment, you two are the best. We really appreciate that. We're working hard. And I'm trying to compete with duty, Ron. And I can't do it, but uh, we're not competing. He helps me out a lot, and I, I'm very thankful for, him for that. But this stuff, this case, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing what we're doing on, on YouTube. Uh, we're called content creators. Some qualified, some not so qualified. And it, it, it's sometimes you, you have to really take it from, you know, the Barbara Butchers, the duty Rons, the people with a background in this rather than someone that's just trying to put out, uh, you know, put out material that isn't really, they're not, they're not qualified to talk about. I'll put it that way. You know, Billy, you're talking about the practical part of police investigation, homicide investigation and scientific, and they go hand in hand. But when you get down to it, when you work a case, um, anytime that the practical part, like, um, interview, interrogation, things of that nature. Um, you know, the things that we do early on in the, in the investigation, when it comes down to an arrest and you're going to uh, a trial, uh, the district attorney's office, they always look for that scientific evidence because that's usually irrefutable. It's, it's, uh, usually kind of, uh, very strong evidence. Uh, they like to see that, you know, eyewitnesses, they could be, uh, a little bit off at times and, uh, you know, a, a detectives interview and interrogation skills are always called into question at, at trials and stuff. Uh, you know, did you threaten my client and things like that? But again, uh, the two of them run together, uh, practical and scientific. And, uh, you know, w without the without the two of them working together, I don't think you could come up with a, uh, a conviction in, in almost any case, you know. No. And, you know, some some of the other things that we neglected to mention, there was other evidence recovered. For example, Brian Laundrie's clothing. There was a green yes. pair of shorts. There was uh, there was also a, a, a journal that was contained in what's described as a dry bag. That's why it was preserved because it was three feet underwater, but it was preserved because it was inside this bag that was designed to keep it dry. So no one knows what the confession note said or the suicide note. There was also a half a piece of paper, another half a note recovered. And it was described there was a journal as well as a notebook. So it's unclear whether he confessed in the journal or he confessed in the notebook. But these are all things that the investigators know. But it's an important thing to know if this case, uh, if Brian Laundrie hadn't committed suicide and he was arrested and went to trial, uh, all of this evidence, well, obviously we wouldn't have the confession, but all of this evidence would be used against him. 
You know, Billy, uh, there was one other thing that they found and, and it was cited in the report. He went into the hiking trail of the, uh, the Carlton Reserve. Uh, I guess it's the Maya Kahachi Reserve as well. I guess it was both names, but that's pretty uh, good pronunciation for a guy from Brooklyn. <laughs> Maya Kahachi. There's definitely no street in Brooklyn called Mayakahatchee Preserve. <laughs> well, I, I probably repeated that term about uh, 25 or 30 times in all the different podcasts that we did on this case. But, uh, you know, he went into the reserve on the 13th of September. Uh, they found flares and they found a tent still in his backpack. So he probably committed suicide on that day. In the following days, there was great amounts of rain and it flooded the area. So now if his body was there for a day or two. There could have been some animal, uh, you know, uh, interdiction where they could have came and, and fed off of the body, the remains. Uh, then it filled up with water. That may have preserved some of it, but it also speeds up decomposition. Flesh will fall off when it's in water over a period of time. And then once it receded and then everything kind of settled into where uh, it originally was. And, um, you know, that's when everything was found. There were two... Uh, scenes. There was the main scene and there was a secondary scene. The main scene is where all the, most of the skeletal remains were found. The secondary scene had the clothing and some more skeletal remains. There might've been animals that dragged part of it away, went to another area to feed. So that's, that could be the reason that there were two different scenes, or it could be when the area filled up with water that uh, parts of the body were separated and uh, I think that the amount of uh, distance wasn't that great of a distance. Might have been as much as 200 feet, 250 feet from what I read. But there was definitely three feet or more of water in the area. There was water lines on the trees in the area. So there, there was definitely underwater uh, for some period of time. And again, uh, they did such a tremendous tr crime scene investigation. They went down six centimeters around the areas of the bodies where the skeletal remains were found and sifted it. Uh, that's how they came up with most of the bones because a lot of the bones weren't recovered right away. Some of the smaller bones and the fragments were recovered later on when they sifted through it. And then again, with that metal detector, the, the round was found six inches under the ground. So that's pretty good uh, police work, I would say. That's pretty, pretty good. good I'd say that outstanding police work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then also the ballistics part of that is to match it to that gun which once you find it, you know, they fire a, a different round into the tank. They pull the round out of the tank and they compare it to that piece of ballistics that was fired and actually, look, entered and exited his head and then f fell onto the ground. And the fact that they found it is is miraculous. Yeah, that truly is. That uh, shows a, a great deal of uh, effort went into this whole investigation and uh, specifically the crime scene over where Brian was found. You know, there was one other thing in there that I found. Now, Phil, uh, let me just, Phil, let me just, uh, Nikki Bella, sure. the, 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 he fired from the gun from the left temple and the, the bullet exited out the right temple. And that's why they found the bullet as we were just talking about the, the actually the correct terminology is projectile. Right. That's why they found it six inches below the earth uh, via using a metal detector. But it was fired from left to right, and it exited out his right temple. I just thought I'd make that clear. From, from whatever um, position his head was in, the trajected the trajectory, excuse me, the trajectory was from the, uh, all right, I'm going to do it from this side. From the left side, the trajectory, 
tra trajectory was up. It was it was in an upward direction. Of course, it went in here. It went out uh, above the ear, I would say, but in the temple area. That's from what I read. That's what it sounds like. Now, we don't know if his head was pointed down, though. He may have had it like this, and that's how it wound up 50 feet and then into the ground. Or it could have just the bullet just lost energy and went into the ground as well. There is. I there's think that's, Phil, I think it. that's more likely because since it, it, it uh, hit almost all bone, it was probably very slowly came exited and yeah. it probably wasn't far from where his body was. And in the, in a lot of autopsies, what they'll do, uh, there's something called bullet track and they'll actually put a steel rod through the, um, gunshot wound and they'll track it and then they'll x-ray it to show in case the case would ever go to trial in this case, obviously not, but that would show the bullet track. And that's how it, it would be done. I don't know if they did it in this case because they really just found skeletal remains and they, they did recover the round. So I don't think the bullet track was all that uh, difficult to track even without doing that procedure. Yeah, Billy, that's a good point that you bring up. That's one of the techniques that they use to see trajectory of the bullet. I had a case one time in Coney Island Hospital in Brooklyn where shots were fired and a bullet – uh, bullets entered, uh, went through an ambulance and entered the emergency room. It was fired from up on the roof. And we used a laser. The NYPD has a laser that it, it, it shoots a straight line through both angles. So if you have two surfaces that are pierced by a bullet, which we did, they put the laser through one side and one side where the first bullet hole is. And then it lines up with the second bullet hole. And it gave us the exact location where the bullet was fired from. It was like the 10th floor landing. I think the building was 11 stories, but there was a landing on the 10th floor. And we uh, actually figured out that that's where the bullet was fired from by uh, enlisting the laser. But there's so many different things in uh, crime scene investigation that are uh, that are used. You know, one of the things I wanted to bring up, uh, the medical examiners contacted Chris and Roberta Laundry, obviously, to get a swab of their DNA to match up to Brian's uh, uh, remains, which uh, were done through DNA and through the dental records. We know that it's 100% him. But they asked questions about his health, and they said he had no health problems. He was in good health. And they asked about medications. They said he wasn't on any medications. And then when they, the, uh, the medical examiner asked about his social history, they said that they didn't want to discuss that. Now, you know, right away, people are going to say, well, you know, uh, that's a red flag. Why didn't they want to talk about it? They were probably directed on the advice of their attorney. And probably when they were being asked these questions, their attorney was probably present or on the phone and probably told them don't discuss that because it was re really something that uh, they didn't have to discuss and they didn't want to discuss. So I don't think it's a big major red flag. They they did uh, in that report that you played in the beginning, Bill, the reporter did make mention of that. What do you think about that, Bill? You find that uh, odd, suspicious, anything like that, or you just—it's probably on the advice of the attorney. Would you agree with nah, that? Nah, look, they weren't cooperative from day one, so I think that they just don't even want to be asked any more questions. I think they're very concerned potentially to be sued civilly, so I right. think they—they they may smell a trap. So I think that they didn't want to uh, answer any questions. Fire wife 9-11. What I meant was Brian Laundry was right-handed. Why would he shoot from the left side? Fire wife 9-11. We just discussed that uh, in length. And it's unusual but not improbable that he shot with his left hand. Most people, if they commit suicide and they're right-handed, they, they use their right-handed to shoot. Uh, however, we can't discount that he did it because he did shoot with his left hand. 
Uh, we spoke to Barbara Butcher, or Barbara Butcher, Butcher was uh, queried, questioned, and she's been to, I believe, almost 700 homicide scenes. And she said it wasn't that unusual. I want to just play a little bit of another. Well, let me just, news. can I just address Firewife one quick thing? I just want to make a quick Go statement ahead. about it. Um, you have to put yourself in the mind of a person that's distraught, that's contemplating, and then follows through committing suicide. Um, you don't know what's going through that person's mind. There were some photos found. There was a half a note found. We don't know if he was holding that in his right hand, and that could be the reason that he used his left hand to fire the shot. Uh, there's so many different variables. It's unusual, like I said, if it would be just that, that there was no indication of suicide, no suicide note, he wasn't under investigation for murder, then it would probably have a little bit more of a suspicious value. The fact that we know all these other things, I really don't think it's that suspicious at all. Boy. Nearly five months after Gabby Petito disappeared during a cross-country road trip with her fiancé, FBI Denver Division Special Agent in Charge Michael Schneider says the investigation did not identify any other individuals other than Brian Laundrie directly involved in the tragic death of Gabby Petito. The FBI's primary focus throughout the investigation was to bring justice to Gabby and her family. Eight days after Nicole Schmidt reported her daughter missing on September 11th, Gabby's remains were found at the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area in Wyoming. The Teton County Coroner's Office says she died of blunt force injuries to the head and neck with manual strangulation. On September 17th, Laundrie's parents reported their son missing after he went hiking near their Northport home. After an extensive month-long search by law enforcement, Laundrie's parents located an item belonging to their son on October 20th in the Carlton Reserve. The FBI revealing near his remains, they found a backpack, revolver, and a notebook with a written confession. The Sarasota County Medical Examiner says Laundrie died of a self-inflicted gunshot. The attorney for Petito's parents, Richard Stafford, sent in on your side a statement saying, we truly appreciate the FBI's diligent and painstaking efforts in this extremely complicated case. The quality and quantity of the facts and information collected by the FBI leave no doubt Brian Laundrie murdered Gabby. The Laundrie family attorney, Stephen Bertolino, says we can only hope with today's closure of the case, each family can begin to heal and move forward and find peace in and with the memories of their children. So that was a, that was a brief um, sort of synopsis of the whole case, but I so, sort of think it did a pretty good job yeah. of synopsizing everything that occurred. One of the things that people are un, unsatisfied with is people are feeling there was involvement by Chris and Roberta Laundry, And people ask the question, what will happen to them now? Will, will there be a civil case? Will they be prosecuted? And I, I think that somewhere and unsaid in this investigation, there was a deal between the FBI and, and Chris and Roberta Laundry. I really do, because uh, there were some strange things going on. And Duty Ron mentioned it in his broadcast about when they went camping right when after he got home. Do you remember that? The family camping trip? Yep. That was that was very bizarre. That was quite a strange. And we you also know, too, Billy, they bought that camper to go camping. And I, that, that listen, I'm gonna have a little bit of conjecture here, but it sounds to me like they were planning to give put him into the woods in this camper where he could stay for a period of time that's what it sounds like to me and then it all kind of fell apart because there was such a tremendous amount of media attention to this case they knew they couldn't pull it off that's what i 
think was going on there. And and that would indicate that they had information to believe that he had killed uh, Gabby or, or uh, I, I don't think they doubted it in their minds. I mean, Phil, I, I think 100% he told them he did. I think yeah. that that's, I mean, to think anything else would be, to me, would be ridiculous. And the, the laundry attorney, Stephen Bertolino, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, I'm a little conflicted with the advice that he gave. And I understand most attorneys will say, don't talk to law enforcement, don't talk to the police, don't cooperate. However, that advice resulted in the suicide of Brian Laundrie. And not, I, you can't pin it on Stephen Bertolino directly, but let's say it contributed to those, the circumstance where he committed suicide. You know what, Billy? I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, his actions may have been from a legal standpoint as an attorney trying to give his clients the best advice, but the parents are going to have to live with that. I think that they're probably very guilty about it, that they allowed Brian to go into that reserve and, uh, you know, he, he eventually committed suicide. Um, you know, the smart move, and we called it from the beginning, would have been to try and get out in front of it, uh, you know, mount some kind of a uh, legal defense that possibly he could have uh, gotten an acquittal in, in a trial. And if he did get convicted or if there was just such an overwhelming amount of evidence, then try to make a deal where he does a period of time in jail and he has, uh, you know, he gets to see the light of day somewhere down the line. They could have been visiting their son in a jail as opposed to a cemetery uh, had things been played out differently. Uh, I'm sure that they have regrets about it and I don't want to, you know, beat them up any more than they're both, you know, being beat up. Uh, and, you know, when you played the beginning of that video and you see those two young people, it's really a shame that two young people, two young Americans uh, lost their lives. Uh, and for what, it, 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 what was it? An argument? It was a disagreement. It, things got out of control. She's dead. And then uh, he winds up committing suicide down the line. It's really tragic. And uh, I feel bad for all the parties involved, all the families. And, uh, you know, they, they're, they're going to probably carry around a lot of guilt. And, uh, you know, maybe Bertolino was trying to give the uh, the best advice that he can from, uh, you know, from a lawyer's standpoint. But uh, I think that they needed to maybe uh, grab the bull by the horns a little more and, uh, you know, get into this thing a little bit better and, and not allow him to go off on his own. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just the, the thought never crossed their mind that he could be suicidal. But, uh Obviously, no, you know something. Well, I, I I don't buy that. I I think that they knew everything that he knew, and I think that you were right if when you say that maybe if the attorney would have uh, said turn yourself in, and uh, you know I'll I'll be there to represent you and and don't talk and we'll mount a defense because at some they had the, that warrant. Remember that warrant they had for him for. Um, I think it was for grand larceny, the equivalence of grand larceny. Yeah, oh, it was. Oh, yeah, illegally using a access device. I think that's what the charge they, they, they was. They were saying uh, illegal use of an electronic device, which is a credit card. So yeah. Right. Right. So if you he would have uh, maybe maybe that conversation did take place. See, we don't know what the lawyer told him, and they might have said, "No, no, we're not doing that." Where you know what, he's going to go into heart. We don't know. We don't know what what transpired. I mean, I would think if he was going to be logical about it. And if he knew anything about criminal law, that that would be the way, you know, that you should have really played this thing. But uh, again, you know, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Bill. I know you were right in the middle of a thought. No, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, we, we discussed this. This has been discussed uh, ad nauseum, not just by us, but by other 
content providers by a lot of people conjecturing, a lot of you folks in the chat, and everyone has a right to their opinion and to conjecture what happened. But perhaps if the attorney would have said, you know, no, we're going to turn you in and we're going to, you know, we're going to plead no contest or we're going to plead not guilty to this and we're going to fight it. And not that he would have beat it, maybe he wouldn't have, but, you know, something, even a plea of manslaughter or a guilt of manslaughter is better than than death, which is what occurred. And who knows if he could ever have had the strength to face the charges because, you know, we can all, we all would say that suicide is a, is a weak person's way out. And uh, he certainly, I believe he was, he was a weak person. Yeah, I'm sure he was obviously very distraught. I don't think that there was a lot of pondering. Uh, he went into the uh, reserve on the 13th. He never even set up the tent. Uh, you would need some type of shelter from animals and stuff like that, or just even mosquitoes and bugs. So he probably committed suicide uh, not long after getting into that reserve. So, uh, you know, had this thing been played differently, he could have been alive. And, uh, you know, like I said, they could have been visiting him in jail. Uh, and then, you know, again, we don't know. Maybe there wasn't a lot of evidence that uh, uh, would have come forward that they could have gotten a conviction too, you know. So, but uh, it turned out the way it turned out. Um, I feel bad and I, I offer condolences to uh, Gabby's family and as well as Brian's family, because I, I know that those people are going to have uh, heavy hearts. They're going to have a lot of weight on their shoulders based on what took place. So, uh, I mean, it's their child. I'm sure that they loved him and uh, you know, it is what it is. Who knows what his, uh, what went on in the past that maybe they might feel, feel even more guilt if they knew that he was a domestic abuser and they didn't do anything about it. They didn't take any action. So uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that could be going on in that family, but, uh, and then they took a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure from the media and, you know, this was an international uh, outcry, this case, it was an international media event. So they did uh, have, you know, constant uh, news media outside their home throughout the whole uh, ordeal. So uh, yeah, it's uh it's a, it's, it's, it's a tough thing for everybody involved. You know, folks, one of the things that, uh, and we covered this case right from the beginning, one of the things that maybe this case will shine a spotlight on is the domestic violence um, portion of this case. And we know we watched uh, numerous times them being pulled over, Gabby and Brian being pulled over by the Moab police. And uh, we can argue that they, the Moab police had they arrested both of them, that maybe Gabby would be alive today. We don't know that. Uh, 15 days went by between the time that they were pulled over by the Moab police and we believe the time that Gabby was murdered. So if had they arrested both of them, would that have prevented the, the murder? I don't know. The other, the other question is, do we really believe that the Moab police did a bad job, that they should be punished and sanctioned for this, that we mentioned numerous times they spent an hour and 15 minutes uh, on this case on the car stop. I'll tell you right now, that doesn't happen in New York City. And uh, 100%. to me, it looked like they did a pretty, pretty good job. And I've taken some hits for that, for my opinion, but that's okay. That's why I get paid the big bucks. That's what I used to say when I was a sergeant. I make decisions because I get paid the big bucks, even though it wasn't that big. But, you know, you got to make a decision. And I thought that, um, Sandra H. says the arrest would not have prevented a thing. I agree with you, Sandra. Uh, I think you're 100% correct. 
However, it's sort of a, a stain now on the Moab police that that occurred under their watch, that occurred, uh, you know, under the eyes of the entire world. And it makes them as a department and the officers involved, it makes them look bad, even though I don't think they did a bad job, you know. 100% Billy they uh they probably went above and beyond it like you said in New York City they would have never gotten an hour and 15 minutes out of a domestic violence call um there were no real you know sure signs then what he was bleeding there there wasn't eyewitnesses on the scene that showed up and said he was hitting her or vice versa and in fact some of the uh initial inv investigation she said that she had hit him so, uh, you know, like you said, if this this happened the next day, then I'd say, well, you know what? An arrest would have prevented it. Uh, chances are. But it was 15 days later. We don't know. It seemed like there was a, a tumultuous uh, relationship between the two. Um, so we don't know what was going on before this uh, behind closed doors. And uh, we do know that on the 27th, when we all believed that she was murdered, that there was some type of a... Uh, incident uh at the restaurant the piglet restaurant i believe it was called and uh he was described as being out of control and uh you know very angry and and became engaged uh, enraged and got into a fight so who knows after that if it just escalated more and more and it led to gabby's death but um you know it, it's just an unfortunate thing the whole thing is unfortunate i'm glad you brought up about the domestic violence angle of it if there's things that can come out of it good you know they say uh, every dark cloud has a silver lining. The silver lining should be uh, a little bit more uh, training and a little bit more uh, questioning. And, and we brought up in the past when we had other people on the uh, on the podcast about maybe just asking that person, do you feel safe? Are you okay? That may have changed things too. So uh, let's hope that uh, those things will come out of it. Fuzzy Doxy, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. I think the police did a good job. I think they were very concerned about Gabby with OCD going to jail. Fuzzy Doxy, I agree with you, you know, and we we went over this numerous, numerous times. Uh, you know, I just want to do the quick uh, shout out to Joe Murray's commercial here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Kind of miss Joe Murray. He's a great uh, great guy, and uh, we love having him on the show. You know, I, I actually asked Joe to come on tonight, and he's uh, preparing for trial, so he couldn't do it. So um, The big bucks. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's a busy guy, and we love when he comes on. I think he loves to come on our show. And we love the dissenting opinion. Yes. Without without dissent, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? If no, if everyone agrees, right, you never know what's right. And you, that's why the Supreme Court always has a dissenting opinion. Even when something passes, uh, there's dissenting justices that will write the dissenting opinion. So, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, myself and Phil, you know, we've been – Working hard doing these shows, um, scientifically, you know, I don't think you could anyone could have done a better job than Duty Run did the other night with Barbara Butcher, and of course Ed Wallace. They really dissected all of that scientific evidence. But there's other parts of this, and that's why we wanted to put our um, 
two cents, if you will. I got to say something about Joe Murray because his dissenting opinion now, maybe he does it just to be a a chop buster, but I don't think so. I think he really does it because he might, you know, he wants to make sure that beyond a reasonable doubt, like I form an opinion about something and he says something that might be contrary to what I said. And it gets me thinking. And and then, you know, I'm either going to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe he's right about that, or I'm going to, you know, go harder on what I believe based on common sense, scientific evidence, and my experience as a detective. But like you said, Bill, that dissenting opinion, it's challenging what you're saying, and you're going to get challenged in court. So that's why I love it. You know, it's just like, you know, I feel like, listen, I'm retired from the job. I'm not going to court anymore. I'm not going to be challenged in court. But however, when we're talking about these things, it's like getting that challenge now, you know? So that's why we love Joe. He's a great attorney. He's a former police officer and uh, he's definitely a constitutionalist. And this is the way our system of justice works. So it's great to have him on. And I have no problem with being challenged on what my opinion is. So because I, if, if you have an opinion, you have to be able to back it up. Why do you have that opinion? You know, so that's what we try to do on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Jeffrey Crowley, thank you so much for the $5 super chat and the compliment. You guys are great and so professional. Uh, was impressed with thoroughness of the laundry autopsy. Yeah, I was too. I thought that they, the um, the police in Parkland police and I guess the FBI, the ME from that location, they did an outstanding job. When you think of a small jurisdiction like Parkland, think of what that investigation cost that jurisdiction. You're probably talking millions of dollars, you know, because police overtime, all the You're referring to the Parkland shooting, Bill? No, no, no. I'm talking about the, the police from that was uh that was the area that covered uh, Brian Laundry's home. Okay. Um and that think of the money that that investigation cost. Uh, in fact, you know, you, you brought up the Parkland shooting. I believe it was just the anniversary of that. And I was, you know, as I said, I was just down in Florida. And you know, when you hear of those um Active shooters are just the most horrendous thing when young people get killed uh, for no reason whatsoever. It's just, it's it's so heartbreaking, you know. Um, folks, we got a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, this Monday, I have Eric Schubert coming on, and you guys are going to be fascinated by this kid. And I say kid, he's 20 years old, and he's a genealogist. And he just solved an almost 60 year old murder case of a nine-year-old girl who was murdered and raped and he with his genealogical work he found out a suspect and he positively through genealogy identified this suspect and of course married the dna to this guy unfortunately and i say it this way is the perpetrator is dead he's been dead since i think um he was deceased by the number of years. 2000 or 1980. He was de- so he's been dead a long time. So he'll never be brought to justice. But at least the family has closure and knows who did this. And, you know, look, the guy will be punished if you believe in a, in a God. He'll be That's punished. Right. He'll be punished by, uh, you know, by the man upstairs, you know. But anyway, Eric Schubert is a brilliant guy. And we're going to have Lisa Lockwood, who is a um, – she's going to be on the show with us to do a dive into this with Eric. And Eric's like a great kid. We had him on the show once before. And I don't fully understand genealogy and how he does it. So, you know, it'll be an education for Phil and I also. Absolutely, Billy. It's fascinating to think about 
first of all, he's a, he's a 20 year old kid and he's got some tremendous knowledge about genealogy. And I don't know a lot about it. You don't know a lot about it. So it's going to be very interesting for us. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of great questions, but think about that. He solved a case that was over 50 years old based on his genealogy uh, experience and knowledge. So I really love it. I, I'm really chomping at the bit to hear, uh, to get involved in, and uh, hear this, uh, this whole story on Monday. That's going to, you know, be he started out uh, doing um, finding people. Uh, right. you know, lost relatives and stuff. And he started doing this when he was 13 years old. So he's, he's a veteran. He's been doing it for seven and he's so good at it now because yeah. obviously, you know, he, he puts the time in, let's put it that way. But yeah. you know, when like on your computer, when you have like open windows, he's told us the last time, sometimes they'll have 60 or 70 open windows. I'm like, how can you do that? <laughs> we go crazy, you know? <laughs> But, Boy, that's tenacious. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I think he said he started when, when he was on the last time, he said he started because of uh, people that were adopted trying to find their real uh, parents. So that's how I guess it started. And then he just morphed into, uh, he, I guess he's like, a, he's like a super sleuth now. Yeah, he has, his, he has his own business and he does, he actually, I think the police work he does gratis, he does uh, for free and just that's for great. the- uh, Rodhound, thank you so much for the twenty seven ninety nine super chat, thank and you. I appreciate you that you like our show, and I appreciate all you guys that uh, are big, you know, supporting police off the cuff, uh, real crime stories. Because Phil and I work hard at this, and it's it's a struggle, you know, it's a struggle. We're trying to build our audience one brick at a time, just like they build buildings, you know. But uh, this was an interesting. Uh, you know, I think that we presented a little bit differently than others, but I think it was an interesting dive into this and not a, a deep, deep dive, but uh, a dive nonetheless. And, you know, as I said, we covered this story right from the beginning. It, it's interesting as hell. And unfortunately, there was a bad ending. Phil, final words. Final words. First thing I want to say is thank you to our subscribers. We got so many nice comments tonight. Thank you so much. That makes us feel like we're doing something right here. Uh, we got into this case right from the beginning. We did a lot of research on it. We tried to stay plugged in. I looked at that report and I said, oh my God, they really went above and beyond. They did a tremendous investigation. I mean, they took little tiny bone fragments and they glued them together to get the uh, as much as they can of a whole uh, skull to, to examine and, you know, figure out the trajectory of the bullet and stuff like that. But uh, again, let's just say a prayer for these people that they lost loved ones, specifically Gabby Petito's family and Gabby Petito. May she rest in peace. And uh, thank you so much again to our fans. Uh, if anything else should obviously pop up on this case, we'll be right on it. But we got a few other good things in the works. Uh, we're working on a few other uh, uh, topics and uh, guests. And uh, Monday night should be a good one. I'm very excited to uh, get into that one. That's going to be real interesting. Yeah, that should be great. Folks, you know, thank you so much for all your support and for listening and uh, for always uh, supporting us. It's really appreciated. And uh I see some of the same names in our chat and I see some new ones and uh, the new ones, please subscribe and uh, become part of the uh, police off the cuff, real crime stories, family. Good night, everyone. Have a safe evening. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just